A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Tyler, I don't know what it is like in New York City, where you are located, but it is a beautiful day here in Washington, D.C. Pollen levels are off the charts. It is visibly filming up the window of my office. I am leaking like a sieve and I don't care. It's wonderful and beautiful. I biked to office in a linen jacket and khaki pants today, feeling like quite the dandy. Uh, how have you How have you celebrated the weather? Assuming this is East Coast uh, constant, you guys aren't stuck in the doldrums of winter up there. Nope, you're really, you're really rubbing it in, Scott. It's, uh, it is now once again cloudy and misty out, a little colder. I think it's just a citywide hangover <laughs> after the madness of yesterday. Uh, but the sun really did shine on the uh, on the press, I think, who are waiting outside <laughs> during the indictment and any other hangers on. It was really a beautiful day yesterday, so I'm just trying to focus on that. Yesterday was just such a blessing for the honestly not insubstantial industry in New York City, which is line sitting, because you know one of the biggest line sitting events of recent memory. Every line sitting company sitting there overnight trying to get into this crazy arraignment. And it was beautiful. They could actually hang out on the streets comfortably. Like the whole biggest concern is probably rats or something, right? Yeah, it was a beautiful day to be a line sitter, I probably should have said. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, Hellgate, which is a, a local New York City publication, had a pretty incredible story about their experience waiting uh, in line out in front of the courthouse, starting, I believe, the afternoon before the actual arraignment and interviewing a bunch of the people who were there, most of whom seemed to mostly be there because other people had told them that there was a line, thus creating a line out of nothingness uh, and in mere moments. But my favorite person who was interviewed was someone from the uh, business Same Old Line Dudes, LLC. Uh, so professional line setters. He had like a little kind of hutch, like a like a mini tent um, in case the weather got bad that he was sitting in. He seemed like he was really living it up. And I just looked on their website and it suggests that people can reserve professional line setters for uh, Harry Styles uh, and the Hamilton cancellation line among other things. So this seems like our booming business. Well, just to go back to Hellgate briefly, their reporters made a point to say that they themselves were there in the trenches. They did not hire any line sitters. No shade against line sitters, of course, but they were they were there um, representing Hellgate themselves. Could you task grab it out covering the line? I feel like that would be the ultimate New York move. If Hellgate were like, hey, we actually hired somebody to take some pictures and ask questions for us. That will, you know, we'll really know when chat GPT is taking over when you can not only ask it to sit in the line, but cover the sitting in the line. We're not there, there yet. Go. I'm ready for, for same old line dudes to now just fully form into a news organization if we do that. <laughs> Actually, that would be great. They could, you could have like a stringer business on the side. Totally. New York fixers. Exactly. This is brilliant. Someone call them up. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Rational Security. I am one of your regular co-hosts, Scott R. Anderson. I am here with one of my other regular co-hosts, Quinta Jurassic. Hello. Alan Rosenstein is unfortunately not with us this week due to some other obligations. We are thrilled to have with us one of our favorite repeat guests, Managing Editor for Lawfare, Tyler McBrien. Tyler, thank you for joining us here today. You're welcome. D- despite my best efforts to sabotage my future appearances, you keep inviting me back. So for that, thank you. Yeah, you have developed a reputation in lawfare circles that I regret starting because I think I'm the first and first person who said it as Spicy Tyler, which has now entailed us applying a new spice to you almost every day, which we're running out of spices at this point. I think we've really been branching more into condiment zone. I think you're you're underestimating the amount of spices in the world, Scott. I think when we branch out to like the international food aisle, we'll be in better garam territory. Masala, we quite got, yeah, garam masala Tyler, exactly. It's really what we're waiting for. Saffron Tyler. Which garam masala I think is a spice blend, but again, I think we're we're pushing the limits of what we consider spice. Well once yeah, once once you get into the individual components, cardamom Tyler. Cardamom there Tyler. There, there you go. We can do toasted, we can do whole seed, you can do ground, really whatever you want, that in that sort of zone. Regardless, we are thrilled to have you for your hot and spicy takes, Tyler, for this particular episode, for what we are calling the 24-hour news psychos edition. 
because we had a big story break this past week, surprising very few who listen to this podcast, I'm sure. Former President Donald Trump has been indicted, kicking off what promises to be the revival of the 24-hour news cycle madness that we all lived through for years. We had a pleasant two years, y'all. It was a nice relaxing period, but the craziness is back, or at least threatening to be back, and we are stuck in the middle of it with you and are looking forward to talking it over along with a few other stories that emerged this week. Topic one, I'm so indicted and I just can't fight it. As I mentioned, former President Donald Trump has now become the first former president to be criminally indicted. And he celebrated with a speech from his Mar-a-Lago estate that painted the charge against him as a partisan witch hunt and targeted not just the prosecutor prosecuting him, but the judge trying the trial and their families. How big a step is this and where is it likely to lead? Topic two, repress pass. Russia has jailed Wall Street Journal reporter Evan Gershkovich and is preparing to prosecute him on espionage charges. What appears to be driving this action on Russia's part? How should the rest of the world be responding? And topic three, crossing the finish line. Finland has become NATO's newest member, doubling the alliance's shared border with Russia. What does an expanding NATO mean for security in Europe? For our first topic, Tyler, as our first guest to introduce a topic, I believe, we're handing it over to you. Thank you very much, Scott. Uh, well, as Quinta would say, cue the It's Happening Ron Paul gift, because it seems to be happening. Uh, as Scott just mentioned, former President Donald Trump has been indicted and arraigned as of Tuesday, April 4th. The indictment was sought by Manhattan District Attorney Alvin Bragg, in case you haven't seen yet, and released by the city Supreme Court, which is uh, the name for uh, New York's trial courts. It's, uh, it's a pretty bare-bones document, which is not entirely surprising, uh, given uh, similar indictments issued by New York's Supreme Court. Uh, the indictment contains 34 counts of falsifying business records, uh, to which Trump pleaded not guilty across the board. Just as a bit of a refresher, this case uh, dates back to, uh, well, it, it relates to reporting that came out in 2018 by the Wall Street Journal, uh, which sort of outlined hush money payments that Trump and the Trump Organization paid to two women who were going to come forward with with allegations of an uh, extramarital affair. Essentially, uh, these were allegations which Trump and his associates felt would be damaging to his campaign bid for president, uh, and so uh, hush money was paid to the two women. As Scott mentioned, this is unprecedented. Uh, Trump is now the first ex president charged with a crime, though as many history buffs out there would note not the first president arrested. That distinction goes to President Ulysses S. Grant uh, for speeding in Washington, I believe, in his horse-drawn buggy, I believe, multiple times. Uh, he was a bit of a speed demon, which probably tracks, given his biography. So I think I'll leave it there. Where There's a lot to dig into. One of the first things I wanted to talk about is a sort of meta question, uh, the, the sort of on-the-media take. As the title of this episode suggests 24-hour news psychos. It seems perhaps the media has not learned its lesson of, of the last many cycles of Trump madness. So Quinta, I'm curious your take on this first. Has the media learned its lesson with regard to covering Trump? Oh, man, I have been going back and forth on this over the last... I don't know, 24, 48, 76 hours. Um, so I think what you're referring to, Tyler, is that there was kind of a zoo-like atmosphere, um, except not because zoos are orderly. You know, every, every, all the animals are in their places. It was like an escaped zoo, a, a zoo full of escaped animals just running around. I believe that's called nature, Quinta. <laughs> <laughs> no, but that's nature. It's uh, what it's supposed to be. This, the animals, they're they're free. They're it's chaos. They're nobody can get them back where they're supposed to be. Whatever. You're telling me, Scott, they made a free range zoo. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. The next frontier of zoos. So the the thing is that the press coverage was kind of a mess. Everybody was camped out in front of the courthouse. There were cameras in front of the courthouse. There were not cameras in the courthouse, thanks to uh, ruling by the judge in question, which we can talk about. Uh, there were cameras camped out in front of Trump Tower to catch uh, Trump as he left the building. There was a weirdly OJ Chase-like footage uh, that was 
I think I saw a broadcast on multiple networks of Trump's motorcade driving from Mar-a-Lago to the airport in Florida and then fr- from Trump Tower to the courthouse and from the courthouse to the airport. And so the question is, you know, are we kind of giving Trump obsessive coverage because people love to watch things about Trump and love to hate him in a way that once again, as it did during his presidency, sort of doesn't actually clarify anything about what's happening, but is basically so much noise. And I don't know, I I really, I can't make up my mind. I do think that we have seen some indications that news organizations have learned. NPR had a really interesting interview uh, yesterday morning uh, before the arraignment with their editor-in-chief, who explained that they were not going to be airing, that they would be covering uh, the arraignment, but that they were not going to be airing any comments by Trump uh, or his lawyers live on the grounds that they didn't trust that it would be accurate, anything that they said, and they didn't trust that it would necessarily be newsworthy. And they wanted to kind of be able to take a step back and make that call in a more intentional way rather than having to just broadcast it and kind of figure it out as they went. I thought that was a really good development. You did also see when Trump made his remarks at Mar-a-Lago in the evening after the arraignment uh, that a fair amount of news organizations, I think CNN uh, was the only one that actually aired his remarks straight through or almost all the way straight through. That, I think, suggests that people have figured it out a little bit. On the other hand, it is definitely true that the sort of circus-like vibe of, you know, let's watch Trump's motorcade as it speeds down the Florida highway is really reminiscent of some of the worst of Trump era reporting, where it was just kind of Trump, Trump, Trump all the time and not particularly informative. But then again, I don't know, I kind of say to myself, like, well, it is like, this is a former president being indicted for the first time. It is kind of newsworthy to see what he looks like as he comes out of the building. So I think I'm maybe not as pessimistic as some folks have been. Um, I don't think it's, you know, a total wash, but it certainly wasn't the best that it could have been either. I agree with you, Quinta. I think what I was hearing is also just a recognition of how difficult a line this is between reporting on the unprecedented, the big, the major, the consequential, and then repeating the same errors of the past. Uh, often it can be a case-by-case basis, a speech-by-speech basis. I will say I did see some heartening things. Uh, for example, I, I had NBC News on for the Trump speech. And again, I'm guilty of tuning into the Trump speech. You know, if we're talking about people not covering it, you know, we're also consuming it. Uh, but pretty quickly into the speech, NBC cut away and moved to the anchors. And not only did they cut away, they also explained why they cut away. So one thing I've, I've enjoyed seeing is much like that NPR uh, interview about, you know, what they would cover and what they wouldn't cover. I've enjoyed uh, some news organizations explaining their reasoning, which is, I think, a good practice to signal to, to audiences why they're doing something. I don't disagree with with what I, either of you said, but I think there's actually one major factor that has come into play that really has helped already introduce a little bit more of a strain of sanity into the coverage of this, and hopefully will continue to be that way moving forward. And that is that judge, the decision by Judge Mershon, the judge who's overseeing the proceedings, basically to be pretty limited in the amount of media he's allowing of the actual judicial proceeding. There are no cameras. There's a a fixed number of kind of fixed pool images that are being allowed out. I don't believe devices are being allowed to live blog the proceedings, although I'm guessing through runners, reports were coming back from the proceedings that they're happening, but really as kind of like the big developments. It wasn't until we got the transcript later that we really had a sense of the details of what was happening step by step. And we've seen a lot of Responses to this actually fairly critical, I think, in the media. I saw at least three different op-eds and different venues saying, oh, this is a violation of public rights. The first, There's a First Amendment interest in this. There's a public interest. We should be seeing every minute of this. I don't think that's actually the right take. I don't think, you know, getting to the truth means that the truth has to happen in real time. Instead, what we often see is that when we see very complex events like this happening in real time, there's lots of opportunities to cherry pick particular facts emphasize particularly perspectives, um, particular statements by particular actors that 
can more often than not kind of derail the proceeding and in particular turn up the heat around the proceeding because by cherry picking specific facts, specific images, specific moments, you can shape a narrative of what's happening that feeds into people's pre-existing viewpoints and drives them further. And the media has kind of an incentive to do that to some degree um, of all stripes. Remember, the media is a for-profit industry in this country, almost across the board, not entirely, but almost across the board. Uh, and they want clicks and they are driven by market incentives to pursue clicks. And even the most responsible media outlet inevitably does kind of play up the controversial elements of proceedings like this because they want stories, they want to keep people interested. Instead, now we all have to wait to the end of each day of proceedings to really get a detailed sense of what happened there. And it means that we're going to have to take it a little bit as a whole. And it's going to be harder to pick out those little sound bites that can be woven to build a narrative this way. I'm really enthused that that's the, the path the judge chose in this case. And that's not unusual for criminal proceedings, I should note. Like, I think it's actually probably more the norm, although in a case as exceptional as this, you could see a judge going the other direction. Um, but I'm encouraged this is the way the judge is handling it here. I hope it's a model that we see other judges who may well see, oversee proceedings in Georgia or in the District of Columbia or elsewhere in federal court follow, because I think it's going to make for a lot more manageable handling of the media environment around these proceedings and make the proceedings themselves, therefore, much more manageable. Yeah. In the spirit of, of news organizations or media organizations shedding light on, on their own editorial discussions about how to cover Trump, uh, I'm curious if either of you have organizing principles around your own coverage of Trump, your own analysis, uh, or even even lawfares um, institutionally, uh, especially I think in light of the fact that we've seen in the days before the indictment so much speculation, some less responsible than others, on an indictment that we haven't seen. And, and I think you know we really made a point at Lawfare not to do that. Uh, but if you have any other organizing principles or, or things that you make sure to do in the coverage of Trump. Yeah, I think it's a it's a really good question. Um, and it's really hard, right? Like, I, th- I think that part of what we're seeing is that news organizations like talking about Trump, because people like to read things about Trump, and they like to watch things about Trump. And so there's a very self reinforcing aspect to all of this, which I think um, I'm, I'm drawing here a little bit on a, a point that Adam Serwer made in a piece in the Atlantic. And so I think it can be like hard to break out of that. I do think that one of the principles that I've kind of tried to hold myself to is making sure that I am grounded in what I'm saying and something that's beyond just like, oh my God, it's Donald Trump. Um, that, you know, whether that's a document or something else or sort of using this as a way to understand a bigger phenomena. Um, I think that the press is actually getting better at that, maybe. I feel like I'm I'm saying that and I'm immediately going to be undercut by some piece of terrible coverage or something like that. But it, it does feel to me like there's there's a little more sophistication there in contextualizing what he's saying, explaining why this is important, um, all that, you know, kind of thing. And and I will say, I mean, look, like the I think that the media criticism aspect is is super important here because it is the way that we're all consuming this story. But like this is the first indictment of a former president of the United States. This is a huge, huge, huge historic deal. I think that historic is kind of a, a weak adjective, but that is literally what it is. And so I do think that at least in the coverage that I have read, the press has done a decent job in contextualizing it along those lines. Um, sometimes, I mean, you can take that too far by sort of zooming way out and sort of talking very broadly about accountability and that kind of thing without actually looking at the specific charges that are at issue, which I think can sometimes be a mistake. But it feels like at least we're moving towards some kind of broader agreement that there needs to be more sort of contextualization or grounding and coverage, even if we can't always agree on what that is. I agree with that, you know, and I think in some of our own decisions internally, although, you know, Lawfare is a very different organization than conventional media and then other peer organizations, you know, there's just different philosophies uh, towards this sort of thing. Um, but I know, you know, I think one strategic choice we tend to make, and I one I generally stand by, is to not make any very strong assertions about uh, specific outcomes where there is general doubt, even if we might have a particular view on what we think the law is right on. 
um, you know, you, you see these arguments that come out even the last few weeks around um, this particular decision where people were, before we saw the indictment saying, well, here's the charges we think they're going to be charging and here are the potential legal issues and here are the reasons why those legal issues are right or wrong. And that's a very understandable instinct. I think delving into those issues can be useful and there's ways to go about doing it. But coming in with these strong legal brief um, sort of arguments saying, here's the right way to view this, which you often see, you know, a lot of experts do kind of talking at saying, here's my view on this and here's why, why this is right. I think often overstates the level of determinancy in these sorts of proceedings, unprecedented proceedings, truly historical proceedings. These legal issues are complicated. Um, and while there may be one answer that seems like the more correct legal answer, and, and we don't shy away from asserting that where we think it's the case, I think we have to acknowledge the fact that there's a lot of different individuals, actors, and institutional actors involved in these sorts of proceedings that have different perspectives that are engaging with really difficult questions in a position of good faith, not always in a position of good faith, but hopefully more often than not. And so we just have to be have a little humility about what we think the outcome is going to be and how confidently we can say something is the right reading of the law, given that what determines what is the right reading of the law for most of the institutions involved is a, a separate body run by people who are not us. And so it's something we're a little more conservative about, uh, and I certainly am a little more conservative about individually. You know, we try and sketch out a bunch of arguments. Um, and as we get further along, once we see what people actually brief, once we see the arguments, then we can gauge a little bit more. But all these decisions, when they get this much attention, people are trying to find new angles, and there's a ton of speculation around them. And I'm not sure that's always super productive. Um, even though, you know, there's genuine insight to be had there, um, they also sometimes can go too far. And, and that's one thing I think we've tried to stay away from to kind of turn the heat down a little bit on some of this. Yeah, I mean, I think it's also worth like acknowledging that we don't know a lot. The indictment was a little bit thin on the ground in terms of the what legal theory uh, the DA's office is using. And and uh, I, I think we can we can talk about this in the press conference. Um, it seemed like that was intentional on their part. So there's a lot that we don't know and I don't want to get out over our skis, but I do think it's worth talking about like how we view the indictment, what our kind of what our takes are after yesterday. I will say I went into yesterday with a fair degree of skepticism about this case, not because I, you know, know an enormous amount about uh, New York criminal law. Um, I, I don't, um, and I will be the first to admit that, but because it has a very, very weird and winding backstory that involves uh, the U.S. Attorney's Office for the Southern District of New York declining to prosecute it, two district attorneys in a row sort of shrugging and not really moving forward on it. One of those was uh, Bragg himself until he then did a U-turn after being criticized by one of the line prosecutors on the case and moving forward. We don't really know why. Um, the whole thing is just kind of odd. I will say I was, I thought Bragg came off very well yesterday and, you know, talking about media criticism, I think he, he was very clearly, you know, putting forward a, uh, performance of sort of, you know, decisiveness and confidence to the press. And that came through really clearly. Um, he did make the case for why New York State has a particular interest in the case that, you know, it's, I think he referred to it as the financial capital of the world. Um, and therefore, they have a particular interest in ensuring accurate business records. So I think that, you know, there's something there. I don't know if it's enough to charge and to prosecute a case. And it's kind of hard to say until we have more. But I'm curious what you both thought and whether your view has changed after actually seeing the charging documents and seeing Bragg's press conference. Yeah, it's a great question. And I, I similarly want to caveat my lack of deep uh, New York State legal knowledge. But uh, one thing that I think that kept coming up for me again and again was the expertise of this particular office. I heard a few times that these cases are really the bread and butter of the Manhattan DA's, DA's office. Um, and so I think I think that's a non-trivial thing of their expertise in prosecuting these types of cases and bringing that expertise to bear, which should, I think, heighten our expectations of the solidity of the case. No, I think that's a really good point. I mean, building these sorts of cases isn't an unfamiliar exercise. And I think we saw that in a few aspects of the indictment, the related statement of Pax and Briggs uh, press hearing or press press briefing he gave after uh, the arraignment. You know, what we saw is, A, that 
they really laid out multiple theories of the case here. Bragg made clear they are relying on at least three underlying criminal violations to bump this up to a first degree uh, falsification of business records, which is makes it a felony as opposed to a misdemeanor, two of which appear to be based in state law, one of which is in federal law, maybe two, because I think the tax one could be state or federal. I'm not sure why it would just be one or the other, uh, as it basically is about withholding income and in both state and federal tax systems require the honest disclosure of, of income levels. So that gives you a lot of different hooks by which you can build your case. And then they've got a lot of different factual predicates, a lot of cases where false assertions were made in business documents. And no doubt they have different baskets of evidence around each of those. Maybe some will fall through. You know, Maybe the uh, defense attorneys for former President Trump will undermine the credibility of certain witnesses, and they won't be able to persuade a jury that certain incidents of purported fraud were there or that they were done with former President Trump's knowledge. But it's very clear they have pretty compelling testimony. They're confident in asserting Donald Trump had specific personal involvement in the decision to pursue many elements of the scheme. My guess is that the testimony from Michael Michael Cohen and Weisselberg, the CFO of the Trump Organization, maybe they have documentary evidence too. In some cases, it, it, it reads as if it is coming from a documentary source, um, not necessarily just a first-person conversation. And that's pretty compelling, you know, that, and maybe that's the sort of new evidence that Brake said they had gotten since the prior decisions by the district attorney's office that where they sort of waffled over to bring this case. The fact that you have these 34, 34 charges also just provides a lot of opportunities for a jury to, A, see a clear pattern of events. That's indicative particularly of intent. This is something you see a lot of white collar prosecutions where it's a fraud scheme and you have to really prove that they were acting in a way that's intentionally fraudulent. And showing a bunch of instances where they did similarly sketchy behavior is often the best way to do that. This really feeds into that. And then it gives the jury lots of chances to, to split the baby. Maybe you have a juror who's waffling, who's hesitant to say, well, I, I think some of these cases are weaker than others. But maybe you'll see other jurors say, well, let's just convict on these four stronger ones. We all agree are the strongest cases and we'll agree to acquit or we'll hang on the other counts, right? In the end, that the punishment is not that different for former President Donald Trump. A lot of these, if they result in prison sentences, which is not a given, um, I believe most of them will likely run concurrently, if not all of them. Um, so it's going to be a similar prison term. There'll be certain factors that might accentuate one or the other. But it gives lots of different bites of the apple for this DA's office. And that's a, that's a smart way to approach this case if you're serious about getting a conviction. And I don't think they would have taken it or pursued it if they weren't serious about that and thought that they could you know, had the had the goods to make that happen. So I think it's a serious prosecution and, and one to be taken seriously by former Don, President Donald Trump uh, and those around him. Um, I think there's a good chance this, this ends up with real legal jeopardy for him. Can I ask you all, you know, your sense of where this goes next? Uh, what should we look for the next step? I have one thought, which I'll put out there, but I'm curious if people agree or disagree. We saw, uh, as I mentioned at the top, former President Trump give a real barn burner of a speech at Mar-a-Lago, where he flew back to from New York last night after the arraignment, where he, despite very express warnings by the judge in the arraignment hearing, targeted the judge, targeted Alvin Bragg, targeted their family members. I mean, he, he didn't do that as much individually, personally, people around him did. I think Donald Trump Jr. tweeted a photo of the judge's daughter, for example. Um, a lot of really, really awful things happening around this case. And I have to say that really clearly seems to be former President Trump doing exactly what the judge warned him not to do. And judges have the ability, although they're often reticent to use it, and there are kind of political and First Amendment considerations at play here, but they have the ability to impose sanctions if, you know, you have people involved in legal proceedings threatening to derail them by, for example, threatening people involved. And I kind of think that's the most likely next step here in terms of a proceeding. I think we might even see something, you know, today, tomorrow, later this week, um, because Trump was so brazen and immediately turning around and doing exactly what the judge told him not to do. After that, I think we'll see discovery and then we'll see motions to dismiss. And it's going to be a while before we get to a trial. But I think this kind of question about Trump's external outer, outer court conduct might be the first real you know, pivot point towards a real judicial proceeding. What do you all think? What's, what should we be looking out for for next steps in this proceeding? Yeah, I mean, I wouldn't be surprised by that. I don't. I feel like a lot of this podcast is just me saying, I don't know New York law on fill in the blank. But I don't know how aggressive uh, judges in in New York Supreme Court, which is not New York's highest court, listeners, they love to make it confusing. It is the trial court. Um, how aggressive they tend to be or how much authority they, they have to be aggressive if they want to on those kinds of things. But I mean, 
I will say the the kind of movement from the judge admonishing Trump for his violent rhetoric to Trump, you know, getting up there at Mar-a-Lago and complaining about the judge and his wife and his daughter and, you know, the lunatic far left prosecutors. um, That's a I think that's a close to direct quote um, who were out to get him reminded me a lot of those moments during his presidency when he would like restrain himself for one speech and there would be all these news stories about, you know, today did Donald Trump become the president? And five minutes later he was, you know, tweeting threats of nuclear war at Kim Jong-un. So it, it was very, very reminiscent of that. And I think, you know, as with the threats of nuclear war, a reminder that he just like, you, you cannot keep him from, engaging in this kind of conduct it just will not happen um and so i certainly even if even if his remarks at mar-a-lago don't lead us to that place now i do feel like this is just going to keep happening and it very much would not surprise me if we end up with some kind of a gag order later on yeah i for me it's also quite an open question you could feel free to push back but it it does feel like trump has more latitude to push the envelope here because of the acute political considerations. Whereas, you know, any slap on the wrist uh, or sanction against Trump and his legal team could be, uh, could give, you know, further appearance of, of partisanship uh, on the side of the court. So uh, I expect Trump to fully uh, take advantage of that, probably read higher than average reticence on the side of the judge that I would guess that the judge would take. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow wherever you are. Tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Well, talking about judicial proceedings here in the United States, let us move to some judicial proceedings that are now pending overseas in a very serious case that strikes close to home to anyone who is a part of or adjacent to the media, uh, uh, as we are here at Lawfare. Uh, a Wall Street Journal reporter, Evan Gershkovich, uh, who is based in Russia, has long reported from Russia, was detained by Russian authorities this past week while reporting far to the east of Moscow, far away from his usual base in Moscow in a different part of the country. I don't believe we know on what or what story he was investigating there, but it was has been described as a reporting trip by the Wall Street Journal. He lost contact with his editors uh, and then was later revealed to have been detained by Russian authorities on espionage charges, which they are preparing to prosecute him for uh, in judicial proceedings that the historical precedent is that they are relatively closed, limited opportunities to object often done in relative secret and almost always result in conviction. It is a pretty devastating case because it is another example of the hostage phenomena that we have become familiar with from uh, the Brittany Griner case, from other cases in recent memory uh, involving Russia, as well as China, as well as some other major allies. This is a new tool in the repertoire uh, of these other major powers, as we've discussed in the recent past here on the podcast. But the fact that this is a journalist is particularly damning because it really crosses a line that a lot of the international community holds pretty sacrosanct, which is that journalists have a lot of leeway and there are rights entailed uh, of of public interest in allowing journalists to operate around the world in a variety of um, situations. That doesn't prevent them from being under threat routinely in a lot of corners of the world, but it does mean this is a case that uh, the international community is likely to take even more interest in than other hostage cases. Quinta, let me turn to you on this first. You know, what do you make of this decision by Russia? Is this a new level, sort of level of escalation, what they're willing to do? And what sort of response do you expect or or, or would you want to see from the United States and others in the international community? Yeah, it's a, as you say, it's a pretty devastating case. I actually found out that um, 
Krishna Koch went to my high school um, and I think graduated a, a year or two ahead of me, although I did not know him while I was there. I do. It does seem to me like an escalation. I mean, Scott, you you watch this sort of issue of what we're we've taken to calling hostage diplomacy more closely than than I do. But arresting a journalist who is engaging in reporting seems like a step beyond uh, arresting a sports star like Brittany Griner, particularly, you know, in this kind of political environment um, where so many other journalists have fled Russia, both Russian journalists and journalists from outside the country who were reporting in it. There's a really devastating uh, New Yorker article by Joshua Yaffa, who writes about Russia for the New Yorker and who says he was a friend of Grishkovich, basically saying, you know, before this arrest, he was really jealous that Grishkovich was still there because, you know, I think it has been really hard. I, I, you know, I know people who study Russia um, and who now, you know, have left, don't know if they'll ever be able to go back. And that is a really, really hard thing. And I can absolutely understand why somebody would kind of tell themselves like, oh, it'll be fine. I'm protected. You know, I'm a Westerner. I'm an American. I'm a reporter. They won't want to touch me. Um, but the calculus has obviously changed. And also it's worth it's worth underlining, like changed dramatically from even a few years ago. Like where we live now in the world where Brittany Griner was arrested on obviously garbage charges and that that is, you know, sort of just part of what Russia does. But like that was not in their playbook even a few years ago. You know, there 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 occasionally you would see a case in which an American kind of got scooped up in, you know, a fight between uh, to Russian billionaires or something like that and sort of got caught in the crossfire and was arrested on, on trumped up charges as a result. But this kind of, you know, obviously government engineered hostage taking is something that I think it's fair to say. I mean, both you should both correct me if I'm wrong, is really new and really scary. And I think really underlines that it's not safe for people to be in that country right now, including, by the way, a lot of Russians is also not safe for. So all that is just to just underline how terrible the situation is and how sad, for lack of a better word, um, things are. I mean, I certainly am worried that the Russian government is going to really push uh, for a high-profile trade here, since they are accusing Grishkovich of, of spying. We know that Paul Whelan, who's another American uh, who's been held by the Russian government um, on espionage charges, uh, which he and the U.S. government have denied, um, that he, the U.S. government has not been able to negotiate to trade him out. Um, obviously, I think the circumstances are somewhat different, and we can talk about why, but that does make me worry that, like, is there even anyone who the United States could trade that Russia would want at this point? Or is it, are they just taking Gershkovich as kind of a, a screw you? It, it just seems very bleak. Yeah, Quinch, I, I agree with what you're saying. It, it really does seem like a ratcheting up of this hostage diplomacy tactic. And to me, it seemed more less uh, like taking him as a bargaining chip and more of just sort of a Machiavellian chilling tactic. And so I think the the chilling effect is probably very intense and very immediate. And as such, I think the 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 media coverage we've seen is is proportionate to the severity of the situation, not only for the chilling effect but also because obviously of the danger to to Evan's life. I should also say that uh you know, I have seen on Twitter and elsewhere uh some I think com- completely wrong sort of victim blaming angles um which I would fully push back on from the reporting that I've seen Evan doing and from you know his presence on Twitter it seemed like he was a fairly deft reporter uh, in a fairly hostile environment and I think it, it scared a lot of people that if if someone like him who was known for maybe not poking the bear and and you know staying sort of in his lane if he was taken and snatched up um, you know it could be anyone which I think contributes to this chilling effect I also want to make sure to say that you know as a as a fellow Jewish person, I think there's a particular tragic poignancy here that this happened so close to, I think at the time we're recording now, it's the uh, it's about to be the first night of Passover, which is, uh, you know, a holiday celebrating freedom from bondage, but also one that is meant to serve uh, as a time of reflection and solidarity for people who are still in bondage. 
so I think it's it's taken on that sort of tragic valence for a lot of uh, Jews who are who are observing this uh, situation as well. Yeah, and I believe his his parents were Soviet Jewish refugees to the United States, which adds a whole another level to it as well. That's right. You know, it, it's worth noting there is a a little bit of a context for this action on Russia's part, although I don't think it makes it any less threatening. We've seen over the last few months a pretty concerted roll-up of a lot of Russian assets, particularly kind of like deep cover assets throughout different parts of Europe. Dozens, really. I think by most accounts, not all of them have been fully publicized. The one that we've heard about in the United States the most, because it's been kind of a topic of conversation, particularly in D.C., although kind of in a comedic way, is uh, the case of Sergei Cherkasov. Um, this is a GRU operative who was posing as a Brazilian graduate student at the John Hopkins School of Advanced International Studies, which I can literally see out my office window right now as we are recording. You know, he was uh, kind of uncovered in a joint operation with Brazilian authorities. He's currently being detained in Brazil. This all just came to a head in the last few weeks, or at least the indictment, I think, came down in the last few weeks by U.S. authorities. Uh, I don't believe he's been extradited yet. Uh, I don't suspect that will be a problem. But that might be the trade at issue here, or there might be lots of other bargaining chips. Um, you know, obviously the United States has the most vested interest in this particular case, and the Biden administration has made clear it is a priority. At the same time, uh, you know, maybe there's just the beginning of uh, a broader range of finding ways to pressure other governments who have been involved in this roll-up effort, and that could entail, entail other journalists. And the point it really drives home, I, I think, is a point we've hit on this podcast before and that I feel pretty strongly about which is that the only way you can really combat these hostage tactics effectively is by preventing them. And that means eliminating the supply of people that can be held in this condition. And that means, as tragic as it is, really cutting back and pushing back on the ability of American nationals to put themselves in situations where they can be exposed to this. Now, journalists have to do this sort of work. It's important. I don't think we should use that as an excuse to say you can't do this. But it means I think journalistic organizations really have to think hard about how and uh, meaningful and necessary it is, as do other organizations. The fact that Russia is willing to do this, this escalatory move, isn't just a threat to the press. It's a threat to all sorts of categories of people who are usually more secure overseas because of conventions of international treatment, because of international law and treaties. Uh, I think particularly here of diplomats and other people in that capacity. I would not be surprised if we have similar, see similar pressure techniques applied to them as well by Russia because they're clearly willing to cross these lines in a way they haven't been in the past. And that makes them a danger to lots of people. And it's something I'm sure the Diplomatic Security Service and many others for the United States and other governments are thinking that through carefully, not just journalistic organizations. Yeah, I mean, Scott, I know I've disagreed with you in the past on your argument there about preventing Americans and others from traveling to potentially dangerous places, because I think it you know, really limits the interchange of ideas and people's ability to see the world. But I, at this point, I have to say, I think I, I may be coming to agree with you, at least in the case of of Russia. I mean, Tyler, I'm curious what you make of, of that, because I will say, you know, just from my perspective as both as a, a journalist and as someone who has, you know, traveled um, a, at least a small amount around the world, it just seems very bleak to me to say, people should not go to these places. Um, but I mean, there's also kind of the the journalistic ethics question, right? Like, is it is it ethical for at this point for news organizations to have correspondence in Russia? Yeah, it's a great question. That was my, I think, biggest question mark walking away from this is how should Western or foreign journalists for that matter cover Russia now? I think there's often a sort of silver bullet you know, behind the curtain view of open source intelligence investigators. Um, but I think they do have a role to play here. Um, there's a lot you can do still, uh, and, and, and an increasing amount you can do from remote places, you know, outside of Russia in terms of investigation, in terms of holding Russian activities accountable. But I think it remains an open question. That's why I let off with uh, my point about this chilling effect that's happening. I don't know. I think as you said, I think it, sh it should be a really deliberate question that newsrooms should ask themselves of putting their own people in, in danger and harm's way. But I also don't think the answer is to, is to, I think I side more with you, Quinta, on this, that I don't know if the answer is to just 
fully disengage and fully pull out everyone who wants to be there and wants to report. I would be curious, you know, we, we can't know at this point, but I would be curious Evan's sake now after having been apprehended, sitting in jail at this point, whether he has any regrets, whether he would now counsel his fellow journalists to completely disengage from going to Russia and whether he himself, I mean, it's, I think it's pretty clear he can never go back after this, but whether he would counsel fellow journalists as well to not go. You know, I, I'll just say, you know, it's a really hard trade-off and I, and I don't pretend otherwise. And I travel, you know, spent parts of my career and my life traveling to, to dangerous places, dangerous-ish places, at least that plenty of people wouldn't travel to, not as much as many others. Um, what I would say about this, though, is that the hostage calculus, when you're talking about these major powers, is just really different. And the interest isn't these individuals, it's the United States. And when they engage in behaviors like this, it really does compromise national interests. Um, because the United States, to its credit, will not abandon these people um, and will compromise national interest, broader national interests to try and bring them back, as they should. Um, but I think that does mean that it's appropriate for the United States to take some steps to say, well, we really have to make sure it's worth it when we let people travel here. The phenomena of venture tourism that we saw that led to, for example, the horribly tragic Otto Warmbier situation in North Korea, that's the sort of thing that just doesn't seem like the trade-off is there to me um, and would, led to a major crackdown in travel to North Korea. And I, and I don't know, I don't think that's necessarily inappropriate. It doesn't mean never, but it just, it just means there has to be a real demonstrated need or interest in doing so. Uh, it, it's also worth noting here, particularly for organizational interests like journalistic groups, Americans are unique targets and certain European states are unique targets, right? It doesn't mean you can't have anybody reporting on the ground there. It means who you choose to send. That's a hard case. Like, you know, again, it's it's easy to say, oh, why don't you just hire Russians? Well, that makes it hard on life and the Russians. It makes it hard on other nationals. But at least for this phenomenon, while those people might face pressure, and that's a real concern for every transnational corporation or organization operating environments like this, they don't face the same political context or political usage that U.S. nationals do and nationals of a few other European countries. And so I, I think that that, you know, is it makes it a different calculus and a reason why there are different risk calculus you might apply for different categories of people. Yeah. I mean, at the same time, though, like the charges that are being leveled against Russians are insane. Like there's a story about a guy who's being charged with disrespecting the armed forces, which I think is a set can get you like 15 years in prison because his his daughter in elementary school drew a picture that could have been construed as anti-war. So Russians are really vulnerable here too. And I don't think we should lose track of that. Yeah, absolutely. I'm not arguing the contrary to that, but the motivation to hold people and use them specifically as political leverage just isn't there because frankly, the United States won't intervene to the same extent for non-US nationals. And uh, while, you know, their cases, maybe they should, uh, it just makes those people less vulnerable to that sort of treatment. Yeah, I, I think we could go in circles here about the about Americans as targets. Um, I think also, I think Evan being American made him obviously a particularly high value target for the Russians. But I think also by that same token, his nationality has now also, you know, there's just a lot of press coverage about it, which I don't think you would get from perhaps a Tanzanian journalist being um, taken in in a similar circumstance. Again, similarly, I don't think the Tanzanian government would have the same sort of bargaining chips that the U.S. government would have in in coordinating a swap. So uh, I think, ironically, also Americans have uh, certain advantages in, in that token. I hope I'm right in this regard with Evan, but I think that should also be highlighted. That's a good point. Well, speaking of Russia, um, the the other big news this week was that Finland is now the 31st country in NATO. Um, And as you mentioned, Scott, in the intro, uh, this more than doubles NATO's land border with Russia, which, A, really brought home to me just how big Finland is, frankly, um, and B, really underlines why this is such a momentous occasion. So in uh, in Moscow, uh, Kremlin spokesman Dmitry Peskov called the uh, accession to NATO an assault on Russian security that would, uh, quote, force us to take countermeasures in tactical and strategic terms. I don't think we have actually seen any of those countermeasures appear as of yet, but of course, it it is early days. 
It's also worth flagging that while Finland is now part of NATO, Sweden is not. Um, so now I think Sweden has the honor of being the only country on the Scandinavian peninsula that is not a NATO member. Um, and I believe that process is very slowly moving forward, but you all should correct me if I'm wrong. So what do we make of this? Like, is how big a deal, I guess, is this, is my question. It seems symbolically huge. Does it change the sort of immediate uh, security status of Europe, like on the ground? Um, is it more a kind of question of calculating risk going forward? What do we think? Tyler, let me go to you first. Yeah, it's a great question. I, at this point, tend to think it's more of a symbolic move and perhaps a harbinger of, of the future of neutrality and non-alignment uh, in Europe to come. To take that former point, uh, from what I've heard and read about Finland is they have they are quite they were quite secure. Um, they've invested heavily in their their military. They uh, have quite formidable elite units um, that have a storied history against Russia in the 20th century, and that they were they were fairly secure in that they quote unquote you know perhaps didn't need NATO. Um, this also now raises questions that because they're in NATO, whether now they can sort of um, lighten that investment in their military, though that, you know, that remains to be seen. And that's um, speculative. Um, I, there was a point raised by um, a foreign policy analyst named Daniel DePetris that he said, Finland doesn't need NATO. And by the same token, NATO doesn't need Finland. Um, but he saw this more as a very strong statement to, to Putin that, you know, your incursions into Ukraine have completely backfired. I think there are many ways to make that statement. So we'd have to ask why, why this one. But yeah, it's it's a good question. I think, and then the other part of the puzzle for me is, you know, what this means for can a country possibly remain neutral politically and militarily in Europe? I was reading a foreign policy article uh, earlier today that named the, the remaining neutral, quote unquote, neutral countries in Europe are Ireland, Austria, Malta, and Switzerland, uh, with caveats for Austria, Ireland, and Malta who have made strong political statements, um, though have not sort of made any sort of moves militarily. Switzerland seems to be the, the last real holdout uh, in terms of political and military neutrality. That being said, uh, I think that Kyiv and, and the Ukrainians would probably at this point uh, interpret neutrality in Switzerland as uh, sort of pro-Russian actions, especially there was one um, interesting move that that the Swiss government uh, prohibited uh, re-exports of Swiss-made weapons to Ukraine. Uh, so I think that kind of move is, I think the U Ukrainians might interpret as as not neutral. But like I said, this remains, yeah, two open questions. Yeah, I mean, it's worth noting, just to clarify one thing here, you know, Switzerland was neutral on military issues. It's actually pretty much gone along with the European Union and most of its sanctions efforts and most of its policy calls. Um, it's been a pretty united front on Europe on a lot of the, uh, the Ukraine issues military involvement just has a different valence for a lot of the European members of the European community, uh, at large, not the technical European community, many of European states, because of the brutal history of European land war, which I think our generation hasn't had to experience uh, and, and has faded into the memory for a lot of um, folks under the age of 60 or 70 or older at this point, even. Um, but uh, even that's beginning to crack down a little bit. I, I think there's actually a pretty significant move for the simple reason that the United States and European powers have drawn the line at NATO. That's the line. Russia can go to war in Ukraine. Russia has gone to war in Ukraine. It can do whatever it wants all the way to the furthest western edge of Ukraine, honestly. And it's been clear, United States and European countries, while they're going to give tons of support to the Ukrainians, they're not going to intervene directly on their behalf. But Biden administration, with full back of European allies, has made very clear, but if, every, if they cross into Poland which is a NATO member, all bets are off. And this will be a full-scale conflict with Western powers. With nuclear powers as well. With nuclear powers, exactly. That is ha does appear to have been a significant deterrent for Russia. We have not seen Russia cross that line, really even flirt with this line. Remember, the one what we thought might have been a Russian missile attack into Poland proved to be 
by most accounts, although it's not hundred percent settled yet, a Ukrainian anti-aircraft missile that kind of wandered off path and it landed in Poland, right? I, I had forgotten about that terrifying 24 hours. Thank you, Scott. Ter- I, I wrote a piece overnight on it at the time that was read, rendered OBE by morning. Uh, still a good read. Check it out on Lawfare. Um, you know, it, it is a major, major issue. Um, Pulling Finland into that club is a big deal for a couple of reasons. That is actually more significant than Sweden, which is why I think you've seen the objectors, Turkey and Hungary in particular, to which was originally to both countries joining NATO, bend on Finland, but still hold the line on Sweden, at least so far, that, as far as I can tell, which is that Finland shares a massive land border with Russia. So if Russia were to want to move tanks into Western Europe, that is one country less close they can get before they start a war with NATO, Right. Um, that's really significant. And yeah, Finland had substantial military capability. They also had substantial military cooperation coordination with NATO even before this. You know, they certainly had every capability to intervene on Finland's behalf very effectively in a very timely manner, probably not that different than what they could do now. But the question is, what do you pre-commit yourselves to and what does that signal to Russia? NATO membership actually doesn't come with a hard obligation to intervene on another state's behalf, but the political connotation very clearly is, oh, that's what we're going to do. And that's been doubled down in the Ukraine conflict context. And so that becomes a big issue. And I think it really underscores and frankly undermines a lot of the longstanding critiques, which I think there was some credibility to in the 90s and particularly the early 2000s about NATO expansion that being a driver of Russian insecurity and contributing to you know tensions on the continent. I think there's a reasonable case to be made about that, particularly in the late 90s, early 2000s. But in this case, it's very clear these states are moving towards NATO because of Russian aggression. Uh, and Russian threats to them is what they perceive in NATO as a voluntary alliance that only commits itself to its members to do defensive actions and not even really doesn't really firmly commit them to do that that much, really, if you read the actual legal text, you know, it has that appeal to them for that reason. And that is a big game changer. And I think underscores the fact that the drive toward NATO expansion comes from multiple perspectives. And yeah, there may have been some shifts in perspectives on Russia's part, but there's also real benefits and real reasons to desire that on the behalf of a lot of smaller states on Russia's periphery, where we've seen Russia persistently try and exercise outsized control, often through violent means. And, uh, you know, that's just been as just as much a driver of uh, regional insecurity, I think, as NATO expansion itself has, or any sort of Western-driven NATO expansion. So it just underscores how complicated the overall picture is, I think. Take that, John Mearsheimer. <laughs> You know, the one question uh, you raised, Quinta, that's probably worth touching on is this this question of Sweden and what happens next, um, which I don't know if there is a path for Sweden to join right now. I think Hungary and Turkey, their stated position is still opposition to it. Yeah. And actually, can can you remind us why that this roadblock has entered the chat? So for Turkey, a lot of it boils down to the fact that Sweden has declined to cooperate with efforts to, I think, primarily extradite, possibly prosecute and extradite and take other sort of law enforcement-ish actions or sanctions actions against a bunch of figures who Turkey maintains are members of opposition movements in Turkey. So uh, Kurdish associates of the PKK, associates of the Golanist movement, which has been kind of the bet noir for the Erdogan government the last five or six years since the 2016 coup attempt, where they say this pseudo kind of philosophical, pseudo-religious uh, order has penetrated the Turkish state and was responsible for the coup. And so they've been trying to uproot them and extradite them from around the world, including the United States. I was actually part of the Mueller report and reports circulating around the Mueller report was efforts to coordinate the extradition of uh, Major Gulenist leader, the leader of the Gulen movement from the United States to Turkey. So, you know, it, it is a major effort for the Turks. And, and it seems like Sweden's unwillingness to bend even a little bit on that is what's really holding this up. That's not surprising for Turkey and Erdogan. Erdogan is a very kind of opportunistic foreign policy guy. His foreign policy looks wild if you're trying to track any sort of consistency about how do you maintain your allies with and how do you maintain longstanding relationships. But if you are just constantly trying to turn every situation to your short-term advantage, it makes a lot more sense. And that's kind of what Erdogan does. And this is another example of that. Um, I am less confident what Hungary's objection is specifically to Sweden having bent on Finland. My suspicion there is that this is much more about wanting to tread a careful line and still maintain relationships with uh, Russia uh, and to signal concerns about expanding NATO too far. And again, this is where the trade-off between Finland and Sweden becomes more relevant. Finland is strategically much more valuable 
Uh, my, I suspect, although I'm not a military expert, so I could be wrong, I suspect it's much more valuable to the NATO alliance in terms of setting a uh, firewall, protecting, you know, further west in Europe from any sort of Russian advance. So you get the strategic benefit from letting Finland in. Sweden, if you hold it back, it's, it's less immediately relevant on a couple of different fronts. Yeah, I think also two other small points that to keep an eye on that could move the needle on on Sweden's accession. The first being that it seems as though uh, short of extradition of, of some of these people, uh, Sweden does seem to be making overtures toward the Erdogan government um, in the form of, uh, I haven't dug into the details, but it seems like they just passed pretty stringent anti-terrorism legislation, which seemed to have been at least motivated in part by sort of assuaging some of, or, or, or I guess, yeah, trying to to make good with, with Turkey. Um, and then secondly, uh, I believe there's a general election coming up in Turkey in mid-May, um, which could change some of this rhetoric, uh, especially after the election, if Erdogan is then elected again, that could change some of his calculus um, in terms of Sweden. Well, folks, we will have to leave the conversation there for now, but this would not be rational security if we did not leave you with some object lessons to ponder on in the week to come before you're back in your podcatcher. Quinta, what do you have for us for object lessons this week? I would like to recommend a book that many have recommended before me, uh, but now also bear my stamp of approval. The book is uh, G-Man. It is a biography of J. Edgar Hoover by the historian Beverly Gage. Uh, We ran a great uh, Lawfare podcast episode where Jack Goldsmith interviewed her. I've been making my way slowly through it. It's very long. Um, And it's just a really fascinating read. Um, So far, I am just at the beginning. So Hoover is launching his career in the Justice Department uh, in part by assisting in the roundup and internment of German Americans during World War I. There are some pretty incredible anecdotes about what he was up to during this period. It's just, you know, well-written, a genuinely interesting story and reveals a lot of complexity without whitewashing uh, Hoover's genuinely awful beliefs and actions over the course of his life. So I am enjoying it and I would recommend it. That book has been on my reading list for a very long time uh, for a variety of reasons, not least though, because my grandfather was J. Edgar Hoover's doppelganger and looked so much like J. Edgar Hoover. He used to go around Washington, D.C. in, I guess, like the 60s or the 50s and would get free dinner reservations everywhere he went. Because everyone's like, here you, here you are, Director Hoover. He's like weirdly like twenty or thirty years younger than Jagger. Hoover. How long did think, he keep up the ruse for? Like, would he just pretend to be Hoover? Well, Hoover the died in like the seventies, so I think at that point it kind of, kind of went. No, down. no, no. But when he when he showed up at the restaurant and got like a reservation, they would take the table. I I, I hope he That's would pay, awesome. but I don't I don't really know. I, <laughs> I, I, it's possible. My grandfather was a wily character, but it's amazing. He looked like I I think he looked like Jagger Hoover's press photos that he kept from when he was like in his forties, even throughout his career. And so even though he was much younger, he like just struck that image. I mean, I'm looking at a picture of Hoover now. It is spooky how much he looks at like my grandfather. It's he looked amazing. more like a J. Edgar Hoover than J. Edgar Hoover did then. <laughs> exactly. It, it is amazing. Uh, I will one, I'll bring a photo in of my grandfather who's now sadly passed away. Uh, and I'll put it side by side so you can see what I'm talking about. It is downright spooky. It's amazing. Uh, well, for my object lesson this week, I am dipping back into my record catalog because I discovered an album I really enjoyed that got critically kind of, not panned, but like a cool reception. Um, but I really have been liking it. It came out a couple weeks ago, so I thought I'd flag it for people to check out. This is Songs of Surrender by U2, U2's latest album that came out last month. You know, U2 is one of these bands that because they're so popular and they have such a pop sensibility and they have such a big arena kind of vibes, I eschewed them for a very long time. Uh, it took a podcast by uh, a comedian, Scott Ackerman, and the uh, actor Adam Scott uh, were called You Talking U2 to Me to turn me on to how great U2 actually is, uh, where they did this incredibly hours long deep dive into U2's record catalog as two super fans. And I really was kind of turned around. I had like, there are a couple of YouTube songs I'd always liked, but I really came to appreciate their back catalog and even some of their more recent albums. Um, the Songs of Innocence, that weird album that showed up on everyone's phones in like 2014. I think it's actually kind of a pretty good album uh, and is worth a listen. Um, but this was a really unique album that they put together, or specifically, I should say, The Edge put together pretty much on his own, where during the pandemic, he basically just reimagined, reinvented almost their entire music catalog and redid these songs where really only Bono came in to record new audio. Otherwise he like kind of re-edited stock 
audio they had of the bass line and the drumming and did new multi-instrumental parts he recorded over it. So it's this complete reimaginings of a lot of these songs that's super cool. They're kind of stripped down. It kind of re like listens like a live album, which I always really enjoy. And a lot of like a lot of them are misses. Like I wouldn't say as a, a whole album to stick together, but some of the songs they do, um, like Wild Horses is phenomenal. Uh, Red Hill Mining Town, the cover is phenomenal. Like Vertigo, I think is a pretty good one, if I recall. Like they're really, really interesting takes that I like, and maybe in some cases, like maybe even more than the original, or at least think it's a, a good companion. Um, so strongly recommend it both for YouTube fans uh, as an interesting listen and get like the 40 track deluxe edition. You can get it on Spotify to listen to because the 16 track minor one leads off some of the most interesting versions, I think. So go for the full box set. But there's some really interesting stuff on there. I think it's a really great listen. I've been listening to it nonstop for like a week now. Uh, and uh, I, I'm really enjoying it. So check that out, even if you are YouTube skeptic, perhaps especially if you're YouTube skeptic, because once you strip it down in this way, you really get what phenomenal songs some of these are, yeah, without the kind of radio arena gloss that YouTube puts on a lot of its stuff. Scott, I'll give it a try, but it's going to take a lot to overcome the bad taste that's still in my mouth from that album appearing 15 years ago in my iTunes library without my consent, but I'll give it a shot. You, you mentioned it and I got mad about it all over again. <laughs> exactly. Uh, you know, here's the best part about the story. The album cover is like two shirtless men kind of cradling each other. And my, uh, a member of my family who I will not name because they, some of the occasional listen to the podcast was convinced that they had had a, 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 uh, their phone had been hacked and somebody was putting pornography on it and kept complaining about it. And then I finally was in the same town as them and pulled their phone. And I was like, Oh, it's this YouTube album that keeps popping up. <laughs> Cause every time they would open their phone, it would play on iTunes and show the album cover. It's pretty great. It was not the best marketing ploy detracted from what was actually a pretty solid album or at least, or at least had a couple of standout moments on. Tyler, what do you have for us? Bring us home. Sure. Well, I want to bookend the episode with another cosine of Hellgate NYC, uh, which is a new-ish, I would say, media outlet focused in New York City. It's um, subscriber-funded. It's worker-owned. Um, it's, I would say, hyper-local news at its best. And it's a lot of um, news you can use, I would say. Not just for New Yorkers, I would, uh, but I think it has it has more mass appeal. I think the the story of how they were covering the coverage of the Trump line is a perfect Hellgate story where it's equal parts sort of hard hitting, funny. It's just they're doing great work and I want to put them on. Um, so Hellgate NYC. All right. As, as an occasional part time New Yorker, I will take that under advisement and check it out. I am excited. Love the name, if nothing else. Well, folks, that brings us to the end of this week's episode. Rational Security is, of course, like its forebearer, a production of Lawfare. While you're at it, visit lawfareblog.com for our show page with links to past episodes, for our written work and the written work of other Lawfare contributors, and for information on Lawfare's other phenomenal podcast series. Plus, be sure to follow us on Twitter at RATL Security, and be sure to leave a rating or review wherever you might be listening. Also, sign up to become a material supporter of Lawfare on Patreon at patreon.com slash lawfare for an ad-free version of this podcast and other special benefits. Our audio engineer and producer this week was Noam Osband of Goat Rodeo, and our music, as always, was performed by Sophia Yan. And we are once again edited by the wonderful Jembecha Howell. On behalf of my co-host, Quinta, and our special guest, Tyler McBrien, I am Scott R. Anderson, and we will talk to you next week. Till then, goodbye. 